electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Facebook is worth almost a half trillion dollars and has more than two billion users who log in at least once a month. That's a famous CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, hailed in Silicon Valley as a Bill Gates for the Internet age, a suburban Harvard kid who dropped out of college to start a company and change the world. Facebook also has problems. Its once non-controversial mission of connecting the world has taken a dark turn. Connecting the world to what exactly? After the Cambridge Analytica scandal and controversies over how Facebook gave partners access to user data, there's a question hanging out there. Is Facebook unwittingly connecting the world to too much misinformation, political manipulation, or worse? Or does the good that happens on Facebook outweigh the bad? Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Ford from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square. With me this week, Roger McNamee. He's an early investor in Facebook. He's an early advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook has made him a lot of money. And he's the author of a new book out this week, Zuck, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. He says Facebook is bad for America. Joining us a little later, Antonio Garcia Martinez, former Facebook employee and author of Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. He does not think Facebook is bad for America. Roger. Great to have you with me here. Once again, we did this on Squawk Alley. We did. We're going to dig in in a different way here. But first, let's establish your bona fides, or bona fides, as they say. Um, You got into tech, oddly, from the kind of New York investing side of things. Well, exactly. So I started at T. Rowe Price in Baltimore, Maryland in 1982. Was there tech in 1982? Well, interestingly enough, (laughs) in those days, it was really about the space program, and the government was a big contractor. And the space shuttle was the new thing, and in the very early days, the IBM PC had just shipped, so there were PCs, but there was no industry, and there really wasn't tech a specific thing. But T. Rowe ran the biggest emerging growth fund in the world, and so they had the largest tech positions of any fund anywhere. And I came in as an analyst originally doing aerospace and software. I think there were three <laughs> software companies in those days. And that evolved over time. And I was lucky enough to grow up with the PC industry. And, so and you played some guitar and took some music theory you know, courses in college, had a band. And somehow, this connected you more deeply to this industry. It did. It to did. Because it turned out I was the same age as all the guys who started the personal computer business. And so instead of going to bars or clubs when they were doing... Uh, conferences and trade shows, they would have jam sessions. And I had an advantage because in college I had paid my way through partway by uh, playing music in happy hours. And so I knew hundreds of songs. And everybody else knew like a verse and a chorus and that was it. (laughs) And so I got to lead a lot of these things, which was cool because Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, Philippe Kahn, who was the founder and CEO of Borland and the head of uh, technology at Apple and all these other people were part of these jam sessions. And so I got to know him as a musician first. And over time, it, that helped me sort of pierce the armor plating that was around the industry. You also got to know Kleiner Perkins and John Doerr pretty early. And I did. And see some interesting people 
come in the doors looking for investment really early. Well, the cool thing about Kleiner Perkins when I met them was they were just coming off Compaq and Sun Microsystems, right? Oh, so big scores. Big scores. And, <laughs> but compared to today, really right. little scores. But I got very interested in the video game business, and I wanted to be an investor in electronic arts. And Kleiner Perkins was one of the big investors there. And I got really interested in a database company called Sybase. This is right when Oracle was going public. And Kleiner Perkins was also the investor there. And so I persuaded both companies that I was going to get to invest, but I had to have John's approval. So I got to know him really, really well. And I later on got to start my first firm, Integral Capital Partners, with John inside Kleiner Perkins, which meant I spent the 90s inside what was, for all intents and purposes, the heartbeat of the Internet. And I was there the day Mark Andreessen brought Netscape in, when Jeff Bezos brought in Amazon, and, of course, when the founders of Google came in to present their company. So did you make a lot of money, too? Well, I was my own firm. I made enough money to yeah. get by. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Silver Lake. Also. And so, so what happened was it, in the late 90s, Kleiner got mad at me because I was saying to everybody, hang on, Martha Stewart came in with her home decorating business and Kleiner slapped their name on it and took it public like two weeks later with a multi-billion dollar valuation. Mm. It was basically home decorating. And I'm going, we are not in a good space here. This is going to land badly and Integral is going to get wiped out. This is Pressure. 1997. Yeah, okay. So I go to, Kleiner says, you're wrong. So I go to Morgan Stanley and other partners say, hey, I think we need a next big thing. We need something to survive a bear market because when this thing ends, there's going to be body bags and not enough people. You need a fallout shelter. Exactly. And so that led to creation of Silver Lake, the first private equity fund in tech. And the original plan of it was, well, if we could pick something, we want to buy Seagate because, you know, I've been studying disk drives from the beginning and nobody ever valued them for the technology they had. And I thought we could we could put more capital in, change the compensation structure, and make them like startups again, and then it would be this really <coughs> cool thing, and it worked great. And this led through multiple different twists and turns. The Grateful Dead, who you were into, you know, their merchandising business was taking yeah. off, but Jerry Garcia had died, and they were looking for a website, and they figured, they heard that you might know something about that, and then you ended up getting connected to Bono, because... Yeah, so, it, I mean, it, it, it is a... As they say in the dead world, it was a long, strange trip. So I've been a deadhead <laughs> since, I was, since yeah. I was a kid. And the dead, after Jerry died, had this website that one of their roadies had made. And they were selling T-shirts and music. And I got involved to help them with the tech strategy. We're going to federate it to all these other bands. We're going to invest a pile of money, which they didn't want to do. So we had to get other people to participate. And Bono reached out. Bono uh, reached out. Hang on. As Bono hang does. On, hang on. He's working with his friend Sheryl Sandberg, uh -huh. who's at the Treasury Department, chief of staff to Larry Summers. It's 1999 and 2000. How and is, wait, wait, wait. How is Bono friends with Sheryl Sandberg? So they were, Bono had this idea that they were going to use the millennium to persuade the U.S., the U.K., and the E.U. to forgive the debt of countries in Africa and Asia right. that were never going to be able to pay And she it back. was at the Treasury Department. And she was okay. the person who handled it. Right, fast So the forward. two so, of them become yes. really good buddies. Yeah. And Bono says, i got to find this guy in California. She says, you're not going to believe this. My brother-in-law works for him at Silver Lake. Mm. I mean, is this a lot of strange connections? So she introduces me to Bono. A few years later, I meet this kid, Mark Zuckerberg. It's 2006. Bono and I have started Elevation together. Which is a venture capital firm, a venture Elevation capital Partners. Firm. Exactly right. Yeah. right. So 2004, we start Elevation. 2006, a guy calls me up and says, Roger, my boss, 
Mark Zuckerberg has a business problem and he needs to talk to somebody who's not conflicted, who's been around a really long time. Keep in mind, 2006, Facebook's been around for about two years. Two years. He's 22. I'm 50. They'd had nine million in revenue the prior year. Right. So uh, they didn't not have profits, revenue. And they, well, newsfeed hadn't started yet. Yeah. They were still colleges and high school students. Profile pictures, yeah. Profile pictures. And so I go to have this meeting with Mark, which was the strangest meeting I have ever been in my entire life. I rec- now this is where the book begins. Mm-hmm. And so I meet Mark, and he's dazzling. And the thing is, I've been studying social dazzling media. Dazzling like? I'll explain. He's got he, makeup on. No, no, no dazzling dresser, like he, he, he glows, <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, he's really smart. I've met Mark. I'm, yeah. No, it's no, a different kind of glow that you're talking about at, than the no, but keep in mind, people I'm looking watching for, this and listening. I'm might. looking for entrepreneurs, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like a dazzling he, to an yeah, investor. Exactly. Right, not yes. Bono glow. He's, he's Zuck right. glow. <laughs> so he comes in. He's 22. He's got the, you know, the courier bag, the flip-flops, the whole nine yards. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. But I'd been paying attention to previous generations of social media, and I was convinced that they were all blowing up because they didn't require authenticated identity, they didn't protect privacy, and as a consequence, bullies and bad actors took over. I didn't start paying attention until Friendster. Friendster started going down because they let anybody, you know, dogs, cats, exactly. on Friendster. And then MySpace, you know, they had issues because Huge issues. they started blocking people, you know, apps from the platform, and, you know, they also didn't require that you be your real self, and so exactly. that got blocked. Down. And the, exactly, and they wind up having all kinds of problems with bad people hurting innocent people. Yeah, yeah. So I'm convinced Mark's broken the code. He's got the right idea, and I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be the biggest thing since Google, and it's going to get all the way to a hundred million users. Oh, imagine that! Well, but hang on, in those days, that would have been a monster <laughs> sure, win. Sure, yeah. And ten so, million was so, monster back then. I think Friendster got all the way to one million, and I think Napster, or I mean. Um, uh, MySpace, MySpace got to, what, 20 million or yeah. something, or 30 million. Anyway, he comes into this meeting, and I say, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, I need to tell you something. I say, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo's going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook, and they're going to do it any day now, and everybody you know is going to tell you to take the money. And here's this thing, Mark, you, I don't know you, maybe you want to sell, maybe you don't, but I know this, it's very rare when the perfect person, the perfect idea, come together at the perfect time. And I believe you have exactly the right idea. The underlying technology is changing in a way that's going to give you advantages the prior guys didn't have. If you believe this idea, I'd say no, because I don't care who buys it, they're going to kill it. And you tell the story that literally four minutes or more go by of awkward silence, him looking around fidgeting, you can tell he's trying to figure out whether to trust you. After can you, you imagine this. sitting silently as far as away from me as you are? No, if man. I just sat here and stared I'm at TV. you. I'm TV. Five seconds makes me uncomfortable. Exactly. So at one minute, I'm going, this is weird. At two minutes, I'm really starting to like claw the cushions. At three minutes, I'm ready to scream. And it just, it seemed like it went on forever. Then finally, he visibly relaxes. And he goes, you won't believe this. But the thing you're describing just happened. That's exactly why I'm here. And how did you know? And I said, dude, I didn't know. But I sure know Microsoft and Yahoo, and <laughs> I know how the Valley works. And I, and I go, do you want to sell the company? He goes, I really don't, but I don't want to disappoint everybody. And I go, let's figure this out. And it's that turned- the last moment that Mark really worried about disappointing everybody. 
Is that it right there? Well, keep in mind, we're talking about his parents. Yeah. We're talking about his buddies from college. I mean, these are, you know, look, my point is I came out of that meeting thinking this is one extraordinary human being. I really like this guy. And that began a three-year period where I was one of many mentors that he had. And I had very specific areas that I worked on, personnel, PR, things where I had a lot of experience. And we had a, the greatest relationship. It wasn't social, you know, I'm a lot older than he is. And it was, but I always felt like, wow, this kid's really great. And like when the social network came out, I didn't watch it because I liked the version of Mark that I knew. Right. And I just want, I didn't want to contaminate. But what was so weird was that about a year after I got involved as an advisor, a chance came along to invest. And then he said to me, I've got to get a new number two. And Meaning a number two executive, yeah. somebody who could help. And I said, company. I think I know somebody. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to do this? And then Cheryl calls me up and says, so I got a job offer to go to work at the Washington Post Company. And I'm going, Cheryl? Yeah, that's another option for her. If you're going to think about going from <laughs> Google to the Washington Post Company. She could company, be working for Jeff Bezos right now. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, if you're thinking about going from Google to the Washington Post, you really ought to look at Facebook. And she goes, no, 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 I can't do that. I go, why not? She goes, look, he's 22. How's that going to work? I go, I think it's going to work great. His mom's a, a doctor. You know, he's got lots of sisters. I, I think he, he can handle it. They got together. It took a while. It took like a month and a half or two months to get them together. But once they did, they got along great. And one thing led to another, and she joined the company as the number two. And so I continued as an advisor for probably another year and a half. But then it became really obvious that the issues were different than the ones I'm good at. Right. So I kind of pull into the background, and I'm just a fan. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I spend like seven years in pure fan mode, just going <laughs> rah, 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 right? Watching my team kick butt and not worrying about it. But the point is, when you left in 2009, you couldn't possibly see what the business model of Facebook would be. Because it doesn't start until 2011, as, as Antonio will tell. Right. And I look at this as, you know, the kind of situation where, where, when I finally saw it, what I realized was that Mark's focus on connecting the whole world had blinded the whole company to the fact that there were side effects of what they were doing that they really need to start paying attention to. Things that didn't matter when they were little. They're gathering so much information about so many people, and they're so focused on figuring out how to target well that they actually end up enabling manipulation. And importantly... That's your contention. And, well, it's not just that. It's that anybody can take advantage. So a legitimate, enabling, right. a legitimate, legitimate advertiser can do it and very successful. That's why the numbers are so great, right? I mean, it is literally the best advertising platform ever created. And you, know, you look at it and you go, no surprise that the fourth quarter was so strong. But at the same time, if somebody sits there and says, I want to suppress votes in an election in some country, they can get access to the same things and actually do that. And, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. Right. And that's a, that's a very serious issue that, um, that people are looking at right now, and there are people on different sides of it. Right now, let's bring in Antonio Garcia Martinez. He was part of Facebook's early monetization team, which we were just talking about. He headed its targeting efforts, was also an advisor to Twitter years back, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. Uh, great to have you with us, Antonio. So you see this differently. I mean, we, we've laid out some things, gone into Roger's background. 
his conversations with Mark and Cheryl in the early years of Facebook, I don't think there's any question. Facebook has a ton of data. It does a ton of targeting, and there are questions about whether they enable manipulation and the impact on society. You think the good outweighs the bad. Why? Well, I think the jury's still out, right? Um, it's a tired comparison, but I actually put uh, Facebook and just smartphones more broadly kind of on the order of the printing press, right? And we're kind of 15 or 20 years into it here um, in terms of the historical timeline. And, you know, we, we don't know what, what, that gonna, what that's going to create yet. And so I, I think it's a little bit early to judge uh, Facebook as a, as a company. So, uh, first of all, everybody should read Antonio's book, Chaos Monkeys. It was, <laughs> dude, I have to say thank you. It was so important to my research <laughs> to see what the experience of being in the ad team was at that period. And I'm really serious. Everybody should read this book. So here's the way I see this slightly differently. I think this is a, this, the printing press thing is demonstrably correct, but I think the chemical industry is a better example because the side effects of internet platforms, and keep in mind, I'm talking about way more than just Facebook, right? Instagram's an issue, Google's an issue, YouTube's a huge issue, is that they're leaving chemical spills all over the place. And right now, they don't have to bear the cost of cleaning them a up. A chemical spill, you know the immediate impact, though. It's, it's not like, ah, let's Well, see actually, how this turns that out, right? wasn't true in the early days. Okay. They poured mercury into rivers, they poured lead into all sorts of things, and nobody realized how dangerous that was mm. in the 50s, in the 60s. They started to figure it out in the 70s and 80s. So, no, actually, I think, I think that it's a pretty decent metaphor for looking at it. And, and again, it covers a lot of things. The election's a relatively small part of the problem. I'm much worried about the impact on little kids on teenagers. I'm really worried about, you know, what is happening on privacy, particularly as we go into the world of Alexa and surveillance devices everywhere. I'm worried about what happens in AI, you know, as you have these implicit biases of the real world getting mm. encoded in black boxes. Right. And Facebook's not responsible for any of those new things, right? Those new things are Amazon and Microsoft and you know, other people. So, Antonio, this is a this is a big ball of wax. Let's try to slice it down a little yeah. bit. If we just take the manipulation issue and the question of um, are these platforms that have a ton of data on people subject to manipulation in a way that damages society? Um, how, how do you how do you tackle that? I mean, is that something where you think we can just sort of wait and see if that's the case? If, you know, enough elections end up getting tipped, if, you know, if, if politics and, and uh, uprisings in certain Southeast Asian countries end up with a certain number of people dead, then, yeah, okay, maybe we need to go and do something about this. Um, thanks, Roger, by the way, for the endorsement, and, and good to finally meet you. Um, I'm also reading his book, and I think it's very much worth, um, very much worth reading. Um, you know, the, um, in terms of the disruption here, you know, it's funny, WhatsApp, which many of your viewers maybe don't use because it's not very popular in the U.S., I think is an excellent example to cite here. For those who don't know, WhatsApp is basically just text messaging, but it's over data instead of your phone. And you may not believe it, but outside the U.S., WhatsApp is the most popular messaging app ever. And in many countries, their phone is like synonymous with WhatsApp almost, right? And in WhatsApp, there's none of the evils that I think a lot of the critics of Facebook, that, and I'd, I'd include Roger in that bucket probably, um, it has none of the features that people often criticize about Facebook. It has no data collection because it's end-to-end -end encrypted. It has no feed. Facebook doesn't control what you see. And there are no ads. It literally is just group messaging. 
And that alone has indeed caused some real problems in countries like huh. India and Brazil, and, and I've written extensively about it. The, the, the reason why I'm citing that is because, uh, you know, we talk about Facebook a lot, and we can get into the details of Zuck, and I think Roger's very right about Zuck's sort of monomaniacal focus on growth above all, which I think is very typical of Silicon Valley. He's absolutely right that that's true. But what I'd like to cite is that I think these technologies are so disruptive to how humans perceive themselves in the world that in some sense we'd be here, we'd be in the same boat no matter what Facebook did, right? Like I think the ability to basically telepathically project your thoughts seamlessly and freely to everyone on the earth is just one of these foundational moments. And we'd be more or less in some version of this timeline, even if, you know, Zuck had taken Roger's advice. I, I, I can see not. that a couple uh, no, of ways, I think, Roger. I, I mean, in a way, yeah, maybe he's right. I mean, if it's happening on WhatsApp, then it was bound to happen on Facebook. On the other, do you weaponize it further by adding the ability to target and segment geographically and, and by interest on Facebook to what was already an entirely new capability? I agree with that. And Antonio, the, the, the key point I want to do is respond to his thing yeah, yeah. and yours in the same way, which is I believe that all this happened much more quickly than what we saw with the printing press, what we saw even with the automobile, which did transform culture really, really rapidly. And what worries me is that it's gone so quickly, there has been very little opportunity to have kind of an evolutionary response. And I think if all of this could be, if we could have some pauses for society to catch up, all this would work really, really well. I mean, we saw in 2018, for example, in the midterms, there was, in fact, a portion of the population that was far more resistant to the influence of social media on their political views and their actual voting behavior than was true in 2016. There was a piece of the population where evolution worked. And my point here is we're about to transform the world with the next generation of Internet of Things, smart devices, and <clears throat> forms of AI that are not only getting rid of white-collar employment, but telling us what to think with filter bubbles and telling us what to enjoy with recommendation engines. Yeah. And I just look at all that and I go, hang on, we already know people are having trouble adjusting to the stuff that's been around for five years, and we're now about to throw a, a much more complex, many more dimensional problem. And, Antony, I totally agree with what you just said, because... I think this is all about adaptation, and we're struggling with it. So, Antonio, what do you do? If, yeah. if, you, if you eventually figured out that this isn't just the printing press, that it is more of a chemical spill, and that some level of, whether you want to call it oversight, regulation, um, somebody's got to have a word in here besides these ultra-powerful platforms, do the regulatory frameworks, do the laws exist to even try to govern that? I, I don't see it. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I think the short answer is no, right? I mean, there's not a lot of privacy regulation in the United States, and there's not a lot of actual law obliging these companies to do anything. I mean, I, I think Roger put his finger on it. It's, it's a cultural problem, right? I mean, there was a Pew Research study recently that cited uh, that older users of Facebook shared more fake Facebook news than younger users did, right? I think those who were effectively born with a smartphone in their hands, to, to use a metaphor, you know, are a little bit more... Uh, savvy and cynical about what they read on, uh, on the internet. I think I don't know. people have a lot of posting a lot of that dumb stuff on Instagram too that pops up when they're in, coming in for a job interview, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, look, it, <laughs> if you look at any medium you can name, whether it be the telegraph or radio, right? I mean, in, in the 30s and 40s, a lot of really disagreeable characters used radio in, in really super negative ways, right? And now, you know, NPR has to beg you for money in exchange for a tote bag, <laughs> right, right? But we had to the have reality a war is that 
to get rid of the guys uh, who are doing the radio thing, right? That, that's right. And, and indeed, Europe's most, one of Europe's most violent wars, the Thirty Years' War, followed the invention of the printing press. That, that's absolutely right. It, it, so I, the, I, there's, yeah. Can I frame yeah. this then? I'd really be interested in your response. The way I look at it yeah. is these guys had a brilliant business plan. They executed really well over a decade, right? And I'm talking about Facebook and Google. That The period from, call it, you know, 20, uh, 2006 to 2016, everybody's just killing it every day. I mean, obviously, in your book, you describe some of the, pit, the bumps along the way, but Basically, they're killing it. With all that economic power came a second thing because of the nature of the product. Suddenly, they have a lot of political power. They influence the public square in every country in which they operate, whether it's Myanmar, whether it's the United Kingdom, whether it's the United States. And they are actually the dominant voice. They are not accountable to anyone. They weren't elected by anyone. And in my mind, that's actually the part of this that scares me the most. It's this notion that it may be rough to create any kind of countervailing force because their political power is so extreme right now. And obviously, I experience this every day because I'm speaking out publicly. And, you know, when you're speaking out publicly against giant corporations, they have a lot of advantages. Yeah. Um, some viewers joining the conversation, by the way, on Twitter, the Jeet. Sarbjeet Johal says, even a legitimate advertiser can take advantage of Facebook as it's so rich, as we were talking about earlier. Also, Twitter is open global broadcast medium. Facebook doing it for specialized groups makes it dangerous. Interesting uh, perspective, given that we were just talking about what made Facebook so high potential from the beginning was that it was tied to real identity in a way that Twitter was not. And Mendelssohn also chimes in, Facebook, because of extreme greed, pays zero dollars for journalism. I guess there is an issue of the balance of power here, guys, and this is the point that we will end on. I can't believe a half an hour has gone by already. Um, I'll go first to you, Roger, on this. Does this come down to having some mechanism in society, whether it's American society, global society, for a check on these powerful technology platforms if we figure out that this is less printing press, more chemical spill? So I think the model should come from pharmaceuticals and chemicals, which were wonderful inventions that could have big downsides if they weren't carefully managed. And the way we solved that problem was we made the companies be responsible for the economic cost of whatever consequences they created. And, you know, we didn't do it by picking prices for everything. We did it by letting the courts and other things set those things and make them actually do the cleanup. I think if we introduce that, you change the incentives. You create an incentive for them to prevent problems before they start. Because right now the tech industry ships products the minute they can get the lights to turn on, and they let the users figure out if there are any bugs, if there are any problems with it. And I think that has to change. We need to be... We need to prove with AI that it is safe, that it is effective, and it does not have implicit bias before you can turn it loose on the whole world. It is an interesting uh, theory, Antonio. I wonder, though, it's easier to gauge the cost of a chemical cleanup when you've got, or, you know, an oil spill, when you've got actual rocks and birds and rodents to clean off, than uh, misinformation and a tilted election and uh, just shifted ideas. Do you think that works? I don't think it works. I mean, I, I just don't see how the government's going to regulate this. I mean, to be honest, look, I mean, we can't even agree on what happened in a in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing. So then, right? what do we I mean, do? Are that, we just screwed? If this does turn out to be more dangerous um, than than some people think, I look. I think democracy and journalism are going to survive. They're going to change, and you know that that's the nature of every technology. Some people get run over, 
and <laughs> new kings are made. I, I, I don't really see, it's odd that Facebook was perceived as having all this power or uh, when at the end of the day, in some sense, it's disintermediating the previous intermediate. Put it another way. If you go back and actually read the criticisms of the printing press that the monks had, it sounds very similar to the criticisms now that Facebook had, particularly from people in old school fields like journalism, right? They're basically complaining that the monopoly on distribution they once had has now been destroyed. And that's mostly due to the internet, not even Facebook. And I, you know, I just don't know how we're going to return to some epoch where, you know, Walter Cronkite ends his news report with a, and that's the way it was, and everyone buys it. Like, I, I just don't see us returning to that. And I don't think that any sort of regulatory regime would return us to that past. Well, and that's the way it is. Uh, thank you guys <laughs> there you go. for being with us. It might not work, but we can still try it. Uh, this has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people talking about, first of all, Roger McNamee's new book, Zucked. It is out this week. Be sure to check it out. I've been enjoying it. Um, Roger, thanks for being with me. John, always a pleasure. Antonio, thanks for being with us as well. Check out his book as well, which has been out for quite a while, Chaos Monkeys. Once again, this has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people from the NASDAQ market side overlooking Times Square. We'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.